0: Jordan is on best. Harper's on
1: Miller. Here's a long three by all. Hey, he's back. He's back. Holiday. Shot
2: clock down to six. Finds one. three.
0: Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. I am your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started, if you have not before, uh, please be sure to go rate and review the Indy Corn podcast on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out, grow this thing, get some more exposure. We're doing some great stuff, so uh, I'd love to hear what you think about it, what you uh, what you want to hear more of, what you maybe don't want to hear more of. Uh, always looking for feedback. Really excited to be joined again today by Mark Monteith. We're continuing our, our pod series, um, overviewing uh, some former Pacers players who, who had a really compelling you know, narrative in, in Pacers history, uh, through both their play, things that went on on and off court and uh, just, you know, their, their general aura as a player. Um, and today we have a really exciting group to cover. But first, I want to ask Mark, how are you doing today? And, and thanks for coming back.
2: Oh, I'm doing great.
0: And Mark, it's good to be with you. I look forward to it. Yeah, definitely. So I, uh, I preeminently dubbed the, the podcast series Mark Squared uh, because I'm not great at titling things. So I figure that's a it's a good way to go to start off. Good enough. Makes sense. It, yeah, it, we we make do. Um, that's the Indiana way. So today, <laughs> instead of uh, instead of covering just one one player today, uh, we decided we're going to go with with two who kind of fit hand in hand a little bit in how they came to the team and um, not quite <laughs> similarly in how they left. Um, but I think their era is pretty much defined by the two of them. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neill. And there's a lot to dive into it, looking at these two players and their impact on the franchise and, and, and everything that went on while they were here. Um, I think it's, it's kind of funny because we talked about Roy being uh, enigmatic um, in the last podcast, and I think you could, you could definitely put enigmatic squared for, for Ron and Jermaine. Um, when looking back at that duo, um, I, what's kind of like the first thoughts or, or, or word if you could describe – the pair that comes to your mind
2: as the, as a pair, you mean as a pair, to Yeah, pair? as a
0: pair. Yeah.
2: Well, it was um, kind of oil and water, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, Ron Artest at that point, you know, was he would admit today immature. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously he's had mental health issues, so I guess it went on, went beyond immaturity. Ron was a really nice guy. You know, I liked Covering him, I don't think you would find anybody who worked for any of the teams that Ron played for that would tell you they didn't like him. You know, day to day, he was a pleasant guy to be around, Um but very emotional, temperamental, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and Jermaine O'Neal, in his own way, was immature as well. He kind of had leadership thrust upon him because he was the team's best player. He was the annual all-star, third in the MVP voting one year. So, you know, Reggie Miller was kind of bowing out gracefully and they kind of tried to make Jermaine O'Neal be the leader. And while Jermaine's an intelligent guy and a mature guy in many ways, uh, as a locker room leader, that type of thing, he really wasn't prepared for that. And so it was kind of an uncomfortable mix there of your two best players not being on the same page. And frankly, I, I don't think anybody could have been on the same page with Ron Artest at that time. And while Jermaine O'Neal tried to kind of bring him into the fold and communicate with him, that kind of thing, he just wasn't equipped to do that. So it might've been a hopeless thing. Neither of those guys are are bad guys. They were certainly both all-star talents, but it just wasn't going to work as a duo. And I think we know that, you know, the great teams, championship teams, you're going to have at least two all-stars on that roster. And Artest and O'Neal were the Pacer guys, you know, they were, talking about the defensive player of the year and a uh, perennial all-star, they were going to have to be the ones. And uh, it just was not working out to the level that it had to work out. Can't say it didn't work at all. They won 61 games one year, but it just wasn't working to the degree that it was going to have to, for the Pacers to uh, really contend for a championship.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And, you know, one of my favorite stories that I always kind of look back on, especially when, when mentioning Ron Um, It's not my story because I I, shoot. I was probably like four or five years old when this happened, but I think I can't remember who told it. But it was on. It was on. It was on a podcast, and they mentioned that that Ron Artest had just been traded to the Pacers. So we're we're talking in two thousand one, two thousand two, and the guy who's who's telling the story is driving down the that driving down the one of the main streets in Indianapolis and sees a guy walking down the street wearing a Ron Artest jersey already. And he's like, wow, this is really, that's really early. You know, this, this trade happened like two or three days ago, drives by the guy. He's like, wow, that's a really tall guy. And it, it's, it was Ron Artest walking down the main street wearing his own <laughs> jersey. And I think um, that, that's just kind of the guy that Ron was. I think I I, I totally agree. He's someone who um I'd love to talk with someday uh, in terms of I, you know, I, I've dealt with mental health stuff myself and some of the, some similar ways and uh hearing the way that he talks about how he used to be and um, how he got to where he is now, it's in some ways inspiring, but also it's it, when you look back, it's, uh it's very uh, telling is the wrong word, but I think like you mentioned with, with dealing with immaturity, I think you notice some of the stuff that he really struggled with and you're like in, in looking back, that makes sense. Um Especially, you know, in, in going back and um, trying to see some of the stuff that happened and obviously we'll dive into The biggest thing that happened for sure. Um, But yeah, and and as far as Jermaine goes, um, he's someone who's really interesting to see interviewed. You know, I I think it's I've heard people call him boring before. I I don't really agree with that. I just think he's he's a pretty basketball focused guy um, from what I've known. You know, he's he's, not that he's not charismatic, but he's just he's there to play basketball. Um, At least that's the sense that I've kind of always gotten in, in seeing him interviewed.
2: Yeah, Jermaine um, was a great person for the media. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, there's an award, the Magic Johnson Award, that the Professional Basketball Writers Association votes on every year for an elite NBA player who shows exceptional cooperation with the media. And I presented Jermaine with the trophy for that one year. And wow. He was a guy you could always go to after a game of practice. Who would speak eloquently about whatever was going on uh i remember the first time i ever met jermaine the trade had been made in the summer of 2000 and uh i'm in the field house uh before training camp began i guess and i just kind of ran into him in the hallway and i introduced myself i'm the beat writer for the star and he just kind of launched into a speech, practically. He talked for like five minutes. You know? Wow. I didn't even ask him a question. That's incredible. He just, oh, I'm really happy to be here. And went on and on. So that was great. I mean, That's I really, really cool. I liked Jermaine. And uh, so, you know, he was, when I say immature, I just mean only in terms of being a team leader and being yeah. able to rally a team, that type of thing. Jermaine was a guy who, um you know, whereas Reggie Miller was the first in the locker room for every game, Jermaine was basically the last. You know, for whatever reason, he liked to kind of roll in late. If the, if tip-off was at seven 10, he'd get there. At six. And he liked to take floor after his teammates. He'd kind of come out separately, which was never a good look. So the team mm-hmm. did not rally around him. He kind of separated himself. There was just too much ego there, uh, I guess is the best way to put it. But that doesn't mean he wasn't a nice guy. He didn't have good intentions. That's why I say he just wasn't equipped to be a team leader. You know, he didn't lead by example. And if you don't lead by example when you speak up in the locker room, guys aren't going to rally behind you.
1: Yeah. Reggie
2: Miller led by example and he didn't like to say a lot. So, but when he did say something, guys backed him or they followed him. And that wasn't going to happen with Jermaine. And that's a reason why he couldn't really bring our test into the fold any better because, you know, Ron worked harder in practice than Jermaine did, you know, and he, uh, even though he was volatile, (laughs) might kick something or break something or whatever, um, the effort was always there. So if you, if your so-called best player isn't giving the best effort or showing the most discipline and dedication, you're not going to fall in line behind him. So that was kind of the problem with Jermaine.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And so kind of in looking at, at them both getting to Indiana, uh, they come, you know, two seasons apart. Jermaine, obviously, like you mentioned, in the 2000 offseason, has his first year in 2000, 2001, starts every game but one. And Ron comes over in the one 2 season. Um, obviously, that team is coming off of the Isaiah Thomas years. They're transitioning into to Rick Carlisle, um, I believe, in 2 3 is Rick's first year. Um What was that transition stage like? Because you're going from, like you mentioned, you're going from the the team that made the finals in 2000. um, And this is a very different team coming in with, you know, the young players of Artest and and, and Jermaine and Reggie starting to take that backseat. Um, What was that like as as that new era is kind of ushered in? What was kind of like your general feeling of the team and, and where they were headed?
2: Yeah, the transition really was pretty impressive because they never dropped out of the playoffs. Usually Mm -hmm. when you have a team that gets to the finals like the 2000 Pacers did and it's an older team and you basically break it up, Rick Smith retires, Mark Jackson goes to Toronto as a free agent, Uh, Dale Davis gets traded for Jermaine O'Neal, you're making a huge turnover here and you're bringing in a new coach and they only fell back to a 500 level. They still made the playoffs. You know, They still made a little bit of noise in the playoffs. Uh, so it really was kind of rebuilding on the fly. And it was an impressive effort by Donnie Walsh to get that accomplished. So, you know, a lot of people, I guess, would remember the Isaiah Thomas years as a bad period or whatever, or him as a failure as a coach. But while I think he had his faults, I think with the Pacers, he was better than perhaps given credit for because they did make the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Um, people tend to forget that in his third season, he was the coach of the all-star team, the Eastern conference all-star team. Uh, the Pacers won their next three games after the all-star game that year, at which point they were 37 and 15, you know, they were rolling. They were 37 and 15. And then a lot of different things happened and that season unraveled. He could have done some things better, I believe. Uh, But you had, you know, deaths in the family. You had injuries, Mm -hmm. a lot of different things going on that caused that team to lose in the first round of the playoffs. And uh, when Larry Bird took over, and it wasn't that Larry Bird was hired to fire Isaiah Thomas. I think he did want to make it work. But I think he then saw that it wasn't going to. They just Those two guys just were not going to communicate on the same level very well. And then when Rick Carlisle became available, you know, Larry Bird made the decision to hire Rick Carlisle, but Isaiah Thomas go. So it was awkward. Um, <clears throat> at first, Jermaine O'Neill was unhappy with that change. Uh, he was siding with Isaiah. I was in Puerto Rico where the World Games team was practicing on the day that Isaiah Thomas got fired and uh, mm-hmm. Jermaine went off <laughs> on the Pacers <laughs> for that. I remember talking to him after uh, their exhibition game, and uh, but it got smoothed over you know, it always does and it worked out, uh, and the Patriots went on to win 61 games in Rick Carlisle's first season. So, uh, but it, you know, looking back, it was certainly dramatic at times. It was awkward at times, but on the whole, it was pretty smooth as far as these things tend to go. So uh, you had a coaching change and a huge amount of player turnover and Reggie Miller transitioning into, you know, uh, your third option on offense, that kind of thing. Uh, and it really went fairly smoothly, uh, to for Isaiah Thomas to coach the all-star game in his third year and then for the Pacers to come back the next year and win sixty-one games with a different coach. And I if I'm remembering, I think um I mean Rick Carlisle could have been the all-star coach. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty impressive, really, how smoothly the transition went, despite the goings on with Ron Artest and uh, and other things at that time as well.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, and it's a really funny yeah. to look back and remember that Rick Carlisle Carlisle had hair because my entire growing up, Rick Carlisle has never had hair. So that's been <laughs> it's always funny to go back he and watch him. some of those games. Um, and
2: like Jim Carrey, when he had hair, he looked like Jim Carrey.
0: Yes, he did. I, I've I've kind of I, I've seen that a lot. Um, in in, in looking at Rick Carlisle and you know whenever he's interviewed or anything, I'm like yeah, kind of kind of looks like that. I totally see that. Um. And also, I think one of the things that I find remarkable about Jermaine and and, and Ron kind of, you know, like lastly talking about them coming over is the way that this team has always been so good at making kind of subtle trades, because, you know, obviously at the time Jermaine was in his at the end of his fourth year um, when they, they trade Dale Davis, who'd been a starter with the franchise for like six, seven years, um, obviously a really quality veteran and just awesome player all around. Um and and you trade for kind of an unknown in, in Jermaine. He played twelve minutes per game in his fourth year. Obviously, still a young guy because he'd been drafted out of high school. I don't know what the sense was of that trade at the time. Obviously, but um, I, w- what kind of was that when when you when you first heard about the trade? Like, what were your thoughts on on Jermaine coming over and, and the loss of Dale Davis?
2: Yeah, it was interesting. That trade was made in August, late August. In mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, a I think it was discussed in June, you know, with Donnie Walsh um, and the Trailblazers. I thought it was a good trade because Dale Davis was a role player who was past his prime. Yeah, And I guess the reason I liked it was because I remember, you know, a game that the Pacers played in Portland um, before that trade was made. And this is why I thought it was a good deal for the Pacers. Uh, the coach of the Blazers, Mike Dunleavy, didn't want to play young guys, he wanted to win every game. Uh, He wasn't that confident in his job security, I guess, but he was under orders from ownership or management, at least to play Jermaine O'Neal. You know, he's our first round draft pick. He's a teenager. We got to groom this guy. So he was playing Jermaine about six minutes per half. He'd bring him in uh, like in the second quarter Mm -hmm. and he'd play him some in the third quarter, maybe early fourth. And that was it. But I remember a Pacers game in Portland where he came off the bench He blocked a shot, ran down to the other end and took a lob pass for a dunk, you know, and he did a few things real quickly. And then he was out of the game. And I remember thinking, God, what does this guy have to do to play? He just made a few good plays and they're yanking him right away. And so Jermaine was frustrated. He was in Portland four seasons. He called it, you know, I went to the University of Portland because (laughs) college, he played in uh, Portland. And uh, didn't get a lot of minutes, but he got to practice every day against older guys. And he certainly benefited from that. So he was really excited to come to the Pacers. Some Pacer fans were unhappy because Dale Davis had been there a long time. He was a popular player, uh, a rugged player. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know much about Jermaine O'Neal. So obviously they were not going to be happy with the trade. But I, having seen O'Neal some, uh, thought it showed a lot of potential because he was going to do nothing but get better. And Dale Davis obviously was on the downside of his career, so uh, I thought it was good, and it certainly turned out to be good.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, <clears throat> it, it's it's funny too, because just looking, obviously, like we mentioned with John, with Donnie Walsh and, and all the trades that happen, and, and that, that that extends into Kevin Perrier too. That's been so huge in building up the Pacers. You know, making those, like I mentioned, kind of subtle moves like that 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 bring in guys who. Um, you know, teams aren't sure on yet, or maybe there's some reason why they haven't, you know, gotten a chance to, to, to get run in, in, in actual games. and The Pacers find a way, find that small sliver of talent. Um, you know, I think one of the first things that I look at with Jermaine that, that I do think will have to be a big talking point because we'd already mentioned it, uh, you know, after the last pod and talking about him um, the, the idea of Jermaine not playing center um which is not just an idea i mean that's a true thing he did not want to play center um i i told you last time that you know i listened to a podcast that sam perkins was on and you know they obviously played for a little bit cuz sam perkins was still on the team after uh, after Jermaine came over and he, he talks about how how good of a player Jermaine was and loved playing with him but it kind of always irked him that that Jermaine never wanted to play center um so i'm i'm really interested to talk about this and get your thoughts on that because i have some i have some thoughts on it as well obviously it's different because I, uh, I'm coming from the era of not, you know, having watched every game, but in going back and watching and uh, trying to understand things from afar.
2: Yeah, Jermaine, you know, that when Jermaine came to the basers, the, the, you still had a lot of low post centers, mm-hmm. classic centers. You know, Shaq was at his peak at that time, for example. Jermaine did not want to go up head-to-head head against Shaq and some of these other guys. He, Jermaine was 6'11", but he wasn't a real strong guy. He was agile. Yeah. Uh, he could step out a little bit. As a mid range guy, he just didn't want to bang. You know, Jermaine was not a physical player. He didn't like that part of the game. Uh, he wasn't built to play that way. So it's understandable. Now, he was able to score on a lot of guys because of his just raw talent and agility. He could get jump hooks with either hand, that kind of thing. Uh, um, but I don't blame him for not wanting to be a center. Uh, and really, that's why the Pacers made the trade with Chicago that brought in Ron Artest, a lot of people think of that as a Ron Artest trade. That was a Brad Miller trade. The Pacers made that deal to get a center. Artest was basically a throw-in to the deal. The Bulls were getting tired of his antics, uh, and the Pacers were willing to take it on. Artest was near the end of his rookie contract, so the Pacers weren't making a huge commitment to him. Uh, But they wanted Brad Miller. So... You know, bringing in Brad Miller to play center and moving Jermaine O'Neal to the forward position uh, seemed like a good idea and was a good idea. Uh, so there's no question that Jermaine wanted a different position. And, you know, when Jeff Foster was there, he could play it. Uh, and it turned out, actually, that the uh, front line of Foster, Jermaine O'Neal and Artest was a really good front line. But you did know that at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, <clears throat> it was important to the Pacers and to O'Neal to get him moved to forward because he was going to struggle <clears throat> against Pacers. Now, he was going to struggle against other centers, but you know, today Jermaine O'Neal would be a really good center, right? I mean, yeah. He was a, a player, but he was a more agile guy, and he could hit the mid-range shots, and uh, he would have less trouble against a lot of the centers in today's game than he did
0: when he played. Yeah, that's one thing that I've always thought about because he kind of reminds me of like – I mean, we always talk about tweeners, especially, you know, going back, you know, five or six years ago, tweeners is guys like, like Thad Young was a prime example of a tweener a guy who's got uh, more of the size of a three, some of the skills of a four, but has like kind of the athleticism to be a three and was always caught in between positions. And I've, I've always thought in going back and watching Jermaine, that, that was kind of him. And part of that was him not being a super physical player, but also, I mean, at 611, you know, two, he's listed at 226 on basketball reference. I think he hovered around 230 most of his career. Um, but I mean, he was just a pretty lean guy. He wasn't really like, um, he wasn't really a guy that, like, I mean, playing against Ben Wallace, I remember going back and watching the 03 <laughs> 04 conference finals, and Ben Wallace just manhandles him in the post. Like, obviously, he put up a good fight and he was incredibly skilled, but I mean the sheer strength that Ben Wallace had compared to Jermaine was a, a massive disadvantage. Um, so I think you just look at all of the guys who were playing center back then, and I think it's just interesting. So I always I just think that Jermaine's kind of a guy who, well, he you can see uh, yeah he's six eleven and he's a great low post player. So maybe that makes you think he should be more of a five, and, and there's definitely a case for that. Um, but that's something that I always look at. Like I don't I don't necessarily want to call him soft. You know I guess that there is. Um, part of the mentality to, to wanting to be physical and wanting to not be physical. Cause you look at, I mean, I guess he's it, it, in terms of just physical profile, not talent wise, he, he kind of relates a lot to a guy like Kevin Garnett and that was never really an issue for Garnett.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mean, you mentioned soft and I think Jermaine was labeled as soft and I guess in some ways he was, but you can't fault a guy, um, for being soft if he's not, uh, just by nature, a really strong and physical player. You know, mm-hmm. you if if you're the strongest guy in the game, it's real easy to be a physical player, right? If you're a guy getting beat up in a game, it's going to be difficult to do that. So I can understand uh Jermaine's issue with that because he wasn't as strong as a lot of the centers that he had to go up against. And Jermaine, you know, by his nature, was not physically tough as far as a guy willing to play hurt. You know, I could remember an incident, not an incident, this is just an anecdote. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always drama about whether Jermaine was going to play or not. He was always nicked up, and it always seemed to be uh, an issue. Is Jermaine going to play next game or not? He's listed as questionable, uh, that type of thing. He's got this type of injury. It's a game time decision. You know, it, it almost seemed like he was trying to add drama to it. You know, I don't know if that's true or not, but it always seemed to be no one was sure about his physical status. And I remember a home game where we were told before the game that Jermaine was not going to play. He's out tonight. And then he played. And he played really well. And so in the locker room after the game, I said, you know, we were told you weren't going to play. What happened? He said, well, and he was very honest about this. So He said, you know, when I came back from the training room to my locker, and keep in mind, Jermaine's locker was right next to Reggie Miller's. Yeah, That was done intentionally. Um, you know, Jermaine said that, you know, Reggie asked me if I was going to play. And when I said no, the look on his face uh, told me I should play. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, I felt like embarrassed or whatever that I wasn't going to play. So he played and he went out and played well. And that kind of told him, look, you can play hurt. You know, you don't have no one's 100 percent through the course of an NBA season. Uh, you can play if you're not feeling great. So uh, that was always just kind of the thing with Jermaine. You know, he. I wouldn't say he missed a lot of games, but he certainly missed his share. And there was just always the feeling that he wasn't as tough as he needed to be. I mean, you can look at his time with the Pacers. His first year, he played 81 games, and then it dropped into the 70s. And then you get to the 0405. He's only playing about half the season. And I know he did have injuries. I'm not saying he faked everything or wouldn't play at all when he was hurt, but mm-hmm. he never seemed to be able to take the pounding of an NBA season and I think that was both a physical and a mental challenge for him so he wound up having a long you know what 17 seasons I think he played he bounced around a bunch of teams uh, but he just couldn't stay healthy for a stretch of time so um, but I just remember that Reggie Miller story when he when he wound up playing when we were told he wouldn't and that seemed to be kind of um, telling about what his mindset was and that's tough for a team you know when you're best player, you're you're all-star, you're never sure if he's going to play and he's not playing some nights and he's playing other nights. You know, it's really difficult to build chemistry. It's really difficult for that guy to be a leader. Um, You know, Reggie Miller rarely missed a game. and He was just this skinny guy. So uh, that was one of the things that caused a problem. And I think that was one of the things that weighed on Ron Artest's mind was that, you know, he's playing. You know, he's not sitting out with injuries. And he's going at every practice, you know, really hard, whereas Jermaine, I think, really didn't want to practice as hard as, you know, you really should, you know. Mm -hmm. And I remember Jermaine telling me once that, you know, Ron was having an impact on him in practice. You know, he played so hard in practice that Jermaine, you know, almost had no choice but to play harder. So, uh, you know, that was an an indication of uh, Ron having some positive influence on Jermaine. But uh, that's one of the challenges that team had was that Jermaine was not always available and not leading by example in that department.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. That that makes a lot of sense. And I think it, it, it it's a loose, loose connection. But one thing I always try and draw in, again, their, their games aren't really that similar. And I think Jermaine's quite a bit more athletic. But just in terms of the um, the kind of ire they draw from Pacers fans in terms of the "Quote unquote" soft mentality. I think you can draw a lot between Jermaine and Miles. Um, you know, I think that they they're kind of similar. And like Miles is just not a super strong guy, and also he has one of the the the, the sheer growth that he's he's uh, made as an athlete from when he was at Texas to now. Like I remember watching him run at his his combine when when he came out of Texas, and I was like, I don't know if this guy's ever going to be able to run on an NBA court. Um, and that's, it's a little bit harsh, but that's honest. Like his, his running, running form was terrible. And he's been like a guy who, who he's always struggled with, you know, bigger centers and, and dealing with, with physicality. And I think that's just kind of how his body's built. So I think that that's one thing why I've always kind of been drawn to Jermaine in his game a little bit.
2: Yeah. You know, there that is a valid comparison and, you know, we need to keep in mind that guys have personalities, Exactly, you know, not everybody is a, a warrior, you know? Jermaine O'Neal grew up kind of in the, I guess you'd say the suburbs. He didn't grow up in Mm -hmm. the inner city. His dad was never in his life. I don't believe he ever met his father. So he was raised by his mother and had an older brother and they saw his basketball talent. And so everything was geared towards Jermaine playing basketball. He told me once he never even filled out a job application, he never had to work. His mom and brother said, you know, you take care of basketball. We'll, we'll work and we'll, you know, support the family, you just worry about basketball because they saw his future. So he, in a way, obviously, if he'd grown in, grown up in Brooklyn or Detroit or something on mean streets, you know, if he could have survived that, he would have been a tougher player. Same thing with Miles Turner comes from a great family. Uh, Parents are together in the suburbs. Uh, You know, he's what we should want players and people to be a really nice sophisticated intelligent person but you can't always have it both ways you can't ask a guy growing up in the suburbs where education is being emphasized and manners are being emphasized uh to go out there and be a warrior every night you know so it's not in his bloodlines it's not in his upbringing uh you just can't expect it i think miles has become better at being more physical he's kind of developed that habit I remember, you know, what was it? A couple, three years ago, he told us that one of his teammates had told him he was playing soft and that really seemed to inspire him. And you could see him playing more physically. I thought he played physically in this playoff series with yeah. Miami this past season with Sabonis out miles averaged 10 rebounds a game. He played well. I thought he played physically, but that's a habit you kind of have to develop and you could never fully develop it. You're not going to be Ben Wallace or Ron Artest you know, if you're not the strongest guy in the game and if you were raised in the suburbs uh, in a great family situation, that type of thing. So it's really unfair to expect a guy like a Jermaine O'Neal or Miles Turner to be an absolute warrior out there, you know,
0: given their bloodlines and how they were raised. You know, you
2: have to account for somebody's personality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a really fair point. Like, trying to understand like athlete psychology and, and, and some of the things that go into, I, I guess you could call it grit uh, in a way. Um, that's something that I always toy with in my mind. I think it's something that we kind of negate a lot. And I, you, you bring up a lot of great points with that um, kind of moving into in Ron a little bit. Cause you know, he, like you're mentioning, he's such a, um, such a really just an incredible player to look at in terms of both on and off court. Um, I think one of the stories that sticks out for me, I think it was, uh, it was either Tim Floyd or, um, whoever the, I can't remember the GM of the bulls name, which I should right now because he was obviously heavily featured in the bulls documentary that just came yeah. out. Um, Jerry Krause. yes, it was Jerry Krause. And so when Ron was a rookie at, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the story before, but when, when Ron was a rookie with the bulls, um, he filled out a job application to circuit city, um, because he could get the employee discount on the uh, um, uh, on the electronics there, and so somebody from Circuit City calls up Jerry Cross on his phone, and they say, "Yeah, um, we're we're calling to inquire about a Ron Artest who filled out a job application here." And Jerry Cross is like, "Ha very funny," and uh, hangs up the phone. And they call back and like, "No, we're like actually, you know, calling to he, he put you as his his contact on on the job application." And and he immediately told Ryan, "He's like, no, you can you cannot go work somewhere else. You're here to play for the Chicago Bulls." But I think that's just part of part of Ron as a person and and him as a mentality is is really interesting to me.
2: Yeah, you know, I was the first one to report that actually. Oh, Um, really? I did not know that. Yeah, it
0: it appeared first in that, but starting
2: out, the reason I knew it, uh, Mark Boyle, the Pacers' play-by-play announcer. uh, had a relationship with Fred Hoiberg, and Hoiberg's playing for the Bulls. When yeah, the test is a rookie, and they had had a conversation at some point where Fred told Mark that you wouldn't believe this, but Ron Artest filled out a job application for Circuit City, and so Boyle had told me that. So I went to Ron once after a game or after practice, and he said, Yeah, yeah, I thought I could get a nice discount on some stuff, you know. So I put it in the star, and then it kind of got out nationally. I mean, we used to have uh. Before the internet really got going, the NBA Mm -hmm. writers would have like conference calls. We'd either get on the phone for a conference call, or we'd all send in notes to uh, a primary source where you could see every team's notes, so to speak. So I, you know, put that little anecdote in there, and it got into a lot of newspapers around the country, and kind of became a thing. So that is true. That tells you that Ron, number one, is a humble guy. I guess Uh, you know, Ron did not have a big ego. You know, he was a regular guy, but it also tells you he's really a little bit wacky because an NBA player can't be holding down a job at Circuit City. You know, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. So it tells you kind of both sides at, of Ron, uh, not a big ego, nice guy. He probably would have enjoyed working at circuit city and helping customers but he probably wouldn't have been very dependable to show up on time every time or you know what hours could he have possibly worked he's out of town half the time but that was a great story it's sometimes reported that he wanted to work at best buy but you're right it was the circuit city and um it's one of the great ron artest stories
0: I, that's so funny. I had no idea that it was you who put that out. That's, that's, that's actually kind of priceless that I just brought that up. But, um, <laughs> I always love looking back at that one. That's like, uh, that's one of the stories I tell people when it, cause I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a complete basketball nerd. So it's all I talk about. And I remember anytime I talk to to people who, who don't really know basketball, I bring up Ron or test and bring up that story because he's one of my favorite players of all time. Um, and, so you know, looking at at Ron and, and his work ethic and his mentality, you know he he's been really vocal, you know, over the last year, um, especially during quarantine, he's been on a, a lot more podcasts and and everything than than I'm accustomed to seeing him on, um, and, and he's talked very openly about you know the struggles that he had when he was in Indiana and and, and trying to you know he obviously had a world of potential. I think it's it's interesting because. You know, I remember watching the Lakers um, when when he's there and, and he wins the title with them. And obviously very good role player, was really good with them. Uh, I was 30 by that point. I had no idea how good Ron was when he was with the Pacers until I really went back over the last couple of years and, and I gathered and understood um, the player he was. Um, and, and you know, he's he's talked about um, like just the, the issues that he went through. Was that anything that you could really see um, – just kind of being in practice or, or being around games, kind of the, the the battle he was kind of having with himself a little bit.
2: Yeah, somewhat. You know, people used to like to say that oh, he's crazy, he's mentally ill. I never – I had a hard time buying into that because my question was, well, what exactly does he have as far as mental illness? He wasn't manic-depressive. He was the same guy every day. You know, in practice, mm. he's almost always pleasant. Uh, he was – volatile, he was temperamental, he would act out and kick something or, or you know, he would behave immaturely. Um, you know, I know one year Reggie Miller bought bathrobes for all the players to wear around the locker room because, you know, the media is in there, women are yeah. in there, so he bought bathrobes for everybody. And one time, I guess, Ron took the practice court in his bathroom rope. He <laughs> would do weird things like that that were disruptive and a nuisance to the team. But I I just was having a hard time buying into mental illness. I just thought he's he's immature, he is volatile, temperamental. But you know, so is Bob Knight, for example. So, you know, what exactly are we saying here? But he, you know, he was a distraction. But I thought he was worth the distraction because he was so good. You know, I remember his first year. My trade was made during the year, so I got mm-hmm. to watch him uh, up close every game, and I became really impressed you know I remember thinking you know his contract was going to be up that year and I remember thinking man you can't keep this guy he's just too volatile you never know what you're going to get Uh, but then as I watched him more I became convinced yeah he's worth whatever distractions he might be causing he'll most likely mature and grow out of this and he's just so good I mean you know Larry Bird used to say he was one of the 10 or 12 best players in the league and I agreed because he could play both ends. You know, he got to where he was averaging 18 points a game or more. You know, he shot too many three-pointers and he wasn't a consistent three-point shooter. But he could score in so many ways as a post-up player, as a taking it to the hole. And he was such a good defender. Obviously, he was defensive player of the year one year. Uh And I, he was so fun to watch defensively because he would intimidate guys. I mean, you could yeah. tell guys were scared when he was guarding them. And uh, I could remember a game against the Knicks. Latrell Spreewell went 0 for 10 from the field with Artest guarding him. And he was like looking over his shoulder. Uh, you know, Ron had a knack for actually getting behind uh, a player, uh, but being right on his shoulder, being right behind him. And the guy would, you know, go for a shot and kind of be looking for him. So the, I remember games sitting there courtside just shaking my head because he was dominating at both ends of the court. God, this guy is good, you know, he's scoring in all these ways and he's intimidating. He should have been a better rebounder than what he was given his strength, but he was still so good at both ends. So I can't be a hypocrite and say the Pacers were wrong for keeping him and working with him as long as they did, because I had the same opinion after watching him. And Donnie Walsh had a really difficult decision to make uh, after Ron's first half season with the Pacers. You know, his contract was up. And they were going to have to, you know, commit to him or let him go. And again, you know, my initial thought was let him go, but uh, I came around on that one. And and you know, they gave him a six-year, forty million dollar contract. And Donnie told Ron, says, "Look, you're a really good player, and you're getting better. It might be smart for you to sign a shorter-term contract uh, and bet on yourself, and you could get a bigger one in a couple of years." Mm -hmm. But Ron saw six years forty million dollars and this didn't want to pass that up. Yeah. And he went for it. But then that became a problem because then Ron was making about one third the money that Jermaine O'Neal was making. And he obviously was not one third the player that Jermaine O'Neal was. And I think that really became an issue. You know, back to what we were talking before. Jermaine's not playing hurt. He's not the practiced player Ron was. Uh you know, Ron is every bit as good a player as Jermaine was and His salary was not nearly what Jermaine's was, but that's Ron's fault. You know, he was warned. He was given the opportunity, you know, to sign a shorter term contract. He didn't take it. So that's on him. You know, he uh, created that situation himself. He just didn't see the bigger picture. And uh, that was unfortunate, but that became one of the issues between those two players.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I I, I wasn't fully like I I knew about the deal, but I wasn't fully aware of that. And it's funny, too, because like you mentioned, I mean, I knew that the the, the trade with the Bulls was in, in due part to get Brad Miller by signing Ron to that deal, and also you can mention the Austin Crozier deal, which was kind of a, as good of a dude as Austin Crozier was. That was a big issue for the Pacers and not being able to keep Brad Miller. Um, yeah. But then Brad Miller ends up leaving after O two O three because of, of Ron's new deal.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, in a way. I mean that was one of Donnie Walsh's rare miscalculations. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought he had it figured out. He had also given contracts to Jonathan Bender and Al Harrington. Yeah, uh, they were fairly generous and they were kind of forward-looking contracts, assuming those guys would continue to develop and get better. You know, Bender only had really one healthy season with the Pacers where he played more than seventy games, and he was coming off of that season, so there was hope that he was over his injury issues. So, you know, Donnie thought he had about sixty million reserved you know, to give to Brad Miller. And then the whole negotiations just blew up and he these incredible offers from not only Sacramento, I think I want to say Utah gave a huge offer and the Pacers just couldn't match it. They would have gone way too far into luxury tax. So that was unfortunate, but I would add that, yeah, they lost Brad Miller, but you know, then next year they start Jeff Foster, at center Mm -hmm. and win 61 games without Brad Miller. And you can make a good argument that their chemistry along that front line was actually better with Foster in the middle than it was Brad Miller because that gave more of the offense to O'Neal and Artest. If you had Brad Miller averaging in double figures, which he would have and should have, that takes shots away from Artest and O'Neal, and that might have been frustrating to them. And and, and, uh, Foster was a better rebounder than Brad, a better defender and not as much a score. I thought that actually improved the chemistry along that front line. So uh, it kind of worked out anyway, but you could also, I understand, make a good argument that that team is better with Brad Miller. And certainly the intention was to keep Brad Miller. I know Jermaine loved having Brad Miller there Mm because Brad, you know, was a seven footer and Brad could take a pounding. He was the physical player. Uh, So the the chemistry with those two was good, but I thought it was kind of good for our test to have Jeff Foster there instead of Brad Miller in the middle, even though, you know, I mean, Ron and Brad got along together just fine. It wasn't that, but their styles of play were kind of conflicting, I thought. So uh, it wound up working out at least that one year really nicely for the Patriots when they won 61 games. But uh, certainly they did want to keep uh, Brad Miller, but uh, it just couldn't work out financially. Uh, And I remember, you know, Brad, when, when uh, it came apparent that he was going to sign another contract that the Pacers could not match it, Br- Brad told Donnie, "Like God, this is just going crazy. <laughs> you know? I mean, th- this is nuts. You know, he couldn't believe himself the offer yeah. that he got. So that's you see that in the NBA sometimes where a player is in demand and there aren't any other players out there like him, and he becomes overvalued. Uh, as, as an example, I expect it to happen this." free agent period with Fred Van Vliet in Toronto. Oh, yes, definitely. He's he's one of the rare, he's maybe the only free agent point guard out there who is capable of being a starter. He's probably going to get overpaid and uh, good for him. But this is what happens in the marketplace when there are four or five teams wanting what you can do, bidding against one another, somebody's going to overpay you. And that's what happened to Brad Miller that summer.
0: Yeah, exactly. And like we've mentioned, I mean, that's a huge theme for the Pacers. They're a team that um, just... By virtue of not having the complete top end talent, um, they have to win off market inefficiencies and, and making those you know small trades for Jermaine and and Ron at the at the time that allowed them to blossom the players they became. Um, so you know obviously transitioning into that 0304 season, um, you know obviously the team wins sixty one games. Uh, fall to to the Pistons in one of the ugliest playoff series I think I've ever had the pleasure <laughs> of watching through. Except yeah. I love every second of it. You know I, I I love the game now. I love the spacing. I love how how the games play. But I just can't go back and watch that series and not say this is fun because you regardless of I think four guys in total on if you include both teams shoot forty percent plus, um, yeah. which you know that's that's definitely not something you would hear today. Um, I think Ron in that series shot like 28% from the field, 19% from three and just ridiculous volume. Um, you know, that team, I, I don't want to say it's the best team in the Pacers history because we'll, we'll go to the next team. Um, but, you know, I, I, in winning 61 games and coming together the way that they did and, and how things finished against Detroit, obviously they beat a really good team in Miami before beat a solid Boston team in the first round. Um, they have just about the top defense in the league and a really good offense to go with it. Um, what are your, you know, in terms of, let's say, Game Six against Detroit ends um, on the bus ride home. You know, what are what are the kind of feelings of the team or, or over that next week and, and optimism shifting to next year?
2: Yeah, coming off that O three O four season. Yeah, yeah, I think um, there's optimism. I mean, it was still a young team. Yeah, uh, you had two all-stars, you know, I mean, Artest was Defensive Player of the Year in 03-04. His maturity seemed to be improving. Uh, Jermaine O'Neal was an all-star. A guy like Al Harrington was emerging coming up. Reggie Miller was still a viable player, a double-figure score. Tinsley, you know, was getting better. Uh, There was still hope for Bender at that point, I think, if he could stay healthy. So, you had a deep team. Uh, You know, Artest was an issue, no question about it, but there was a lot of optimism, I think, as the team was getting better and better, you know, it was, it was trending correctly. Uh, it seemed like it was going to be uh, kind of a battle with the Pistons for the next couple or three years for supremacy in the Eastern conference. So I remember optimism, even though our test was an issue, you know, during that uh uh playoff series. And there was, that was a series where he went, on his own to one of the games in Detroit. He didn't go with the team, you know, yeah. which was really weird. Um, we had stuff like that going on. It didn't seem to be really affecting the way they played. Obviously, it had to have some effect, and there was frustration with Ron. You know, that was the year when I think Ron's frustration grew because he was an all-star, and that's when he's recognizing that he's just, you know, you could argue he was the best player on that team, mm-hmm. and he's looking at his paycheck compared to Jermaine's. You know, that was brewing but we didn't really know that so much at the time. So there was optimism going into that 04-05 season. No question about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, also in 03-04, you know, I, I definitely want to talk about the peaks of the guys and, and how well they were playing because they coincide so much between Jermaine and Ron. I think 03-04 is where we see Jermaine's pretty much best season as a pro. I mean, you could argue 04-05 as well, but that's a shortened season for, for a reason that we will get into. It. And I'm sure uh, if you're listening, you know. Um, hmm. but I mean, Jermaine wins, not wins, but he's in you know top five in MVP voting that year in, in 0304. Um he's you know, third. Yeah, yeah he's third. third uh puts up the 20 and 10 season again, though the efficiency was not great. Part of that's the error and his shot selection. But um, you know, at, at that time was would you have considered Jermaine a top-ten player in the NBA at that time?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, you know, I don't I don't think he was the third-best player
0: yeah. in the league. I think
2: he finished third because the Pacers had won 61 games, and that had to be recognized somehow. Mm-hmm. And Jermaine, being widely regarded as the best player on uh, what was the best team in the East in um, that regular season, uh, gave him uh, added recognition. Uh, yeah. and so I, would, you know, I didn't quarrel with that, but, uh, I, I would not have rated him as third best in the league, but he still got a lot of recognition. So yeah, I would say he was top 10 and you could make the same argument for our test. Again, if you, you know, you incorporate defense into the mix, both of those guys were all stars and you could argue they were better than all stars. You know, if you're an all-star, you're supposedly one of the, what, 24 best players in the league. Yeah, You can argue those guys were among like, say the 12 best. Players in the league, they were both really good, and uh, you know that was another reason for a lot of optimism because Jermaine at that point was still a young
0: player. Yeah, yeah, he's twenty-five, and unfortunately, you know, that's he, he plays seventy-eight games that year after playing seventy-plus um, every single year he's been in Indiana now, and that's the most games he plays in a season the rest of his career, um, and and all the injuries start to kind of compound starting in oh five oh six. Um, you know, the year after the, the brawl, the year after the brawl. Um, so, you know, in terms of looking at this as his best season, uh, was there kind of a lot of, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, like discourse, I guess, about him never really um, kind of able to, I mean, he, he maintains that, um, but just not able to do it for a full season because he's injured. And even when he plays, you know, 69 games again in 06 or 07, that's to a limited degree in, in how well he's playing
2: yeah there was frustration you know that he was out so often um and i never it's hard to weigh in on that because you never know what a guy's experiencing or yeah. what he's feeling as a player you can't blame the guy for being injured you know with jermaine there always was some doubt about how badly he was injured mm-hmm. you know that anecdote i gave you before you know gave uh, an argument that he wasn't playing hurt like a lot of guys do but i i don't know you know in any particular situation or any particular season, you know, it's not up to me to determine whether he should have been playing or not. Yeah. But there was always frustration when your best player uh, is missing a lot of games and fans at some point get frustrated with players who are missing games. You know, that happened with Derek McKee. He was genuinely injured. Um, And at some point people will kind of turn on you and think that you're soft or whatever, don't want to play. You know, we saw that with Bender as well. And people start assuming the worst that you either don't want to play or just too soft. And that isn't necessarily the case. So that did become a factor for Jermaine. And it became a factor in him getting traded, you know, really. Uh, Larry Bird as the team president by that point, when they when that trade was made, could tell Jermaine's on the downside here. He's physically not able to play a full season. You know, we got to move in a different direction. By that time, Jermaine wanted out. And, uh, that's why he got traded to Toronto. But, um, you know, that's just one of the, that happens with a lot of guys where they get older, they start getting hurt and, uh, people get frustrated with that or tired of that. And, uh, you wind up getting traded in that case.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, after kind of looking at Jermaine's, you know, real peak and pinnacles player, you, you, you start the Oh four Oh five season, obviously, the team signs Steven Jackson or trades for Steven Jackson, I I should say. Um, And I I always look at this team and it's easy to just look on paper, but I think in watching them play too, I always come back to this team as the most talented Pacers team of all time. Just in terms of raw talent on the roster, I think it's hard to disagree with how good this team was. Um, And and you're starting that year in the first seven games of the season – Ron is putting up, granted, again, it's in, in seven games, but at the same time, Ron just takes a massive leap as an individual scorer, um, as a passer too. I mean, he's 25 points, six rebounds, three assists, a, two, two steals in a block, shooting almost 50 40, 90. Like, yeah. like again, I have to mention seven games, but it 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 shows that he's starting to ascend as a player even more. He's 25. Um, with again, like I mentioned, only seven games. But well, what was that kind of feeling with him starting the year like that, where the team was going in that that first seven games, and um, just general feelings about that team? Yeah, that
2: that seven game stretch is the best of his career. I mean, yeah. really, he was undoubtedly he flies out at both ends of the floor, as you mentioned. He's he was hitting better than forty percent of his three pointers. That looked like he had worked on that enough to where he was a legitimate three point threat after being like a 30% shooter in the past. Um, you know, I remember the season opener that year. They're at Cleveland, and this is, I think, the Bronze second year in the league, yeah. if I'm remembering right. Yeah, it is. And the Pacers won that game in double overtime, and that was the game Jermaine did not play. Okay, right away, Jermaine's out with an injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and our test was going to sit out as well, but our test uh, got examined by the Cleveland team doctor in the locker room before the game and was kind of given approval the play, and I think Ron was turned on by the fact that Jermaine was not playing. This kind of made him a bigger focal point of the offense. So Jermaine, yeah. Ron, at the last minute, it seemed like jumped into the game and played and played great. And that was one of those games I referenced earlier where I'm sitting there courtside, just kind of shaking my head about how well he's playing. Mm-hmm. And he outplayed LeBron. Now, again, LeBron's in his second year; he wasn't the player he is today, and in no way was Ron, you know, better at any point than, um, than LeBron James. But that night, he was the better player. It was a thoroughly impressive game for the Pacers to beat Cleveland at Cleveland uh, without Jermaine O'Neal. And uh, that really seemed to bode well. And The Pacers won their first four games that year, three of them on the road. They, for whatever reason, uh, had a horrible game <clears throat> against the Clippers, excuse me, <clears throat> against the Clippers where they just got dominated, played terribly. I remember Stephen Jackson after that game, hey, we just lost by 30 points to the Clippers, big deal, you know. I mean, basically he was saying this is one of 82. Yeah. Uh they, they lost their next game at Philly. Ron had been suspended. I can't remember why exactly but Ron got suspended in that stretch for a couple games. Um he missed that Clippers game. Uh, Ron came back and played at Philly and the Pacers lost that, win in overtime. Uh and then, you know, they they win a couple of games at home. And that's when they went to Detroit. So they're, they're what, uh, six and two, I think going into that game, mm-hmm. that infamous game at Detroit. And they were on a roll. And I remember writing, you know, like, Hey, this, you can't say this is a statement game because, you know, we don't really know who the Pacers are. Jermaine O'Neal has been hurt on our test, hasn't played every game. The Pistons were without Ben Wallace, some then because he had gone to, uh, a funeral for his brother, I believe. You know, neither team really had it together yet. But these are the two teams we expect to be at the top of the Eastern Conference. It's a big game, but it's too early to call the a statement game because these teams, you know, aren't all healthy. You know, remember Reggie Miller sitting out, right? Reggie Miller had that broken hand yeah. and Anthony Johnson sitting out. So neither team was nearly at full strength. But it just looked like, man, the Pacers are going to be really good. And we know the Pistons are really good. So this is going to be quite a game and uh, quite a season.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I I think in watching both teams and you looking at what Detroit does for the next couple of years, I mean, it's hard to argue that from 0-4 until probably about two thousand nine, they're the most consistent team in the Eastern Conference, winning you know fifty plus games every year. They make the Eastern Conference Finals six straight years, um, and, and you kind of look at what the Pacers were doing as well. And they had an even younger group than than the Pistons had that, that could have been together. It, it's it's kind of interesting to kind of converse those two teams and, and the directions they took from this. Um, obviously, you know, I know we've talked before about uh, being at the palace when this happens, but I, I would love to get your insight on it again. Um, obviously the game is just completely out of hand already, you know, and, and Ron Hard fouls Ben Wallace on a drive to the rim. Um when that happens, um, obviously you can't expect what what comes next. Um, but just kind of recapping a little bit, what what was your feeling being in the arena and, and, and just kind of the um, electricity that goes through it before everything happens?
2: Yeah, it was stunning when it happened. I mean, yeah, I mean, when Artés gave that heartfelt to Wallace and Wallace shoved him, you know, that was – that gets your attention, but you don't think it's going to blow up. You think, "Oh, they'll get separated. We'll finish this game." Uh, and then things just kept happening, happening, and progressing. And I have always put the majority of the blame for that on the officials that night. They did not handle the situation. They were just kind of standing there, watching. You know, yeah. all they had to do was kick out Ben Wallace and Von Artest. The game was over. Get them both off the court. Let's just get this over with. You know, and I've said before that if a guy like Joey Crawford one of the veteran officials who you could argue was too harsh, who would kick guys out of games too quickly, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. If he'd been working that game, he would have had those guys out of there. But there were three referees that night, and I don't remember all who they were exactly, all three of them. But they didn't handle it, and things just kept fester. And our test goes and lays on the scorer's table. Uh, that was because he had been told in his anger management classes, you know, the Pacers were having him go to, I don't know if it'd be a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but he was going to see somebody in Texas, you know, for these sessions to control anger. And he'd been told when there's brewing conflict, remove yourself physically from that scene. So that's what he did. that's why he laid down on that scores table, but then he starts clowning. He picked up the phone, pretending he was going to make a call, you know, Reggie Miller's over there in street clothes, kind of standing in front of him, hanging up the phone, (laughs) trying to control the situation. Uh, and it just keeps getting worse. And my thought was, I'm about 15 feet from. I wasn't on press row. I was, you know, behind first row behind press row. Yeah. Thinking that somebody's got to get Ron off that table, because I had the feeling a fan's going to throw something at him, or Ben Wallace, who was trying to get at him, is going to break through and get to him and start pounding on him. I thought, get Ron off of that table. And sure enough, a beverage comes flying out and hits Ron on the chest, and we know what happens from that point. So um, it was stunning. I never felt unsafe. I never felt like there was going to be a mass riot or anything like that. And then when the players start pouring into the stands, you're really just in kind of a state of shock. You know, you're just, you aren't thinking much of anything. You're just watching in in a state of shock. I just remember one thing thinking selfishly is, boy, this is going to be ugly for me. There's going to be a lot to write about. Yeah, There's There's going to be a lot of suspensions and penalties. And this season is going to change dramatically. And I'm going to have to cover this stuff. Uh, so that thought was going through my head, but it was just a, you know, a horrible evening. Uh, there were half a dozen things that happened that made that thing come off. Uh, a lot of fingers to be pointed in different ways, piston security, uh, our test, of course, uh, Ben Wallace, uh, you know, Ben Wallace is you just come back from his brother's funeral. So he's on edge. That's probably maybe why he reacted to that hard foul the way he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just go to a lot of different things that cause that thing to happen. Uh, and it was ugly, no question about it.
0: Yeah. I think one thing I always come back to when looking at this, because I've seen, you know, I've, I've watched it like, you know, 15 times, probably more on YouTube because you can. Um, I, I always think about how lucky Jermaine is that he slipped when he threw that punch because that would have been, I, I think that could have just been, Oh God! Even worse than uh than things that had already been going. Yeah.
2: Well, that was, that was the part where security, like they just abandoned the thing. You know, fans were just walking onto the court. And yeah. So yeah, the guy that Jermaine went after, and you're right, if he hadn't slipped, he might have killed the guy. And one fan just walked right up to our test. Our test actually had the presence of mind not to hit him in the face, but give a forearm to the chest. You know, to keep that guy away. But you got fans in Pistons jerseys acting like they're on the team walking onto the court to participate in this thing and there was no security there. Yeah. And that's why I thought the Pistons got off way too easily and all the penalties that were assessed. Um but it was fortunate that nobody got seriously injured that night.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um and so obviously uh you know the whole season kind of falls out because of this the team kind of limps into the playoffs they make the second round um but it, it, it's pretty clear that the team's fractured from this right um and then you start to see some of uh, the fallout from that you know the next year and the year after uh, as guys get get traded and the team gets disassembled um you know obviously <laughs> did did you feel um kind of within that that week after the even the day of just that there were going to be some pretty massive changes to the organization from that.
2: Well, not necessarily to the organization. You know, I wasn't going to assume this is the end necessarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was surprised by Stern's penalty of our test, you know, suspended for the rest of the year. I remember talking to Bird uh, about this later. And he said, when uh, it first happened, he thought our test would be suspended for about 15 games because he had experience during his playing career he said kevin McHale once went up to a heckling fan in the front row of a game and wrapped his hands around the fan's neck you know he wasn't going to really hurt him but he was trying to scare him he was you know pretending like he was going to strangle him yeah and you know he saw things like that and and knowing that really you know the brawl was initiated by the fan who threw the beverage at our test that's what really set it off and that's what the court system up in michigan determined to be the impetus of that whole brawl and they they penalized the fan you know mr green who threw that beverage more than any of the pacers you know so the professionals of justice you know the legal system put the onus of it on the fan who threw the beverage uh which in my opinion is correct so bird's thinking that hey look you know a fan started it and Ron should not have gone in the stands but you know you know vernon maxwell went into the stands after a heckling fan and uh was suspended for 15 games so bird thought i might be wrong on maxwell suspension but it was something like that maybe less than 15 probably so he's thinking ron's going to get 15 then he starts hearing boy we hear stern's really mad he's going to make a statement here so then bird is thinking well maybe it'll be 30 games (laughs) and it turned out to be 72 you know turned out to be the rest of the season and that surprised everybody and i I'm confident that David Stern today, uh, if he were alive and, and talking to somebody, uh, he would admit that he overreacted. Uh, uh, in fact, he came very close to letting Artest play in the playoffs that year. He nearly rescinded that penalty and let Artest play in the postseason. He told me that directly in his office in New York. Um, but he decided to stick with it. Uh, but I think he feels like he overreacted. He was so concerned about the corporate image of the NBA how it would lose you know, television revenue, the damage it did to the league's reputation was going to have a huge financial impact. Um, and so that's what he was looking at. He didn't look at the facts that a fan really initiated this whole thing, and the Pacers responded to it incorrectly, but it was a response to an assault, basically, not, not initiated by the Pacers. Uh, so that was the problem with how that came down, and uh, it's too bad, you know, because I don't know, it's hard to know what would have happened if our test came back. You know, if he had given been given time to practice with the team and, and get mm-hmm. in shape, uh, it certainly could have made a difference in the playoffs, but it just, you know, wasn't going to happen. It's, it's, it's too bad that Stern overreacted the way he did. Uh But, you know, you could certainly make an argument on his behalf as well. Uh, I, but I, re- here's one thing I remember, Mark, the night, of the brawl. I'm back in the hotel room watching ESPN. That game was televised by ESPN. Bill Walton's there. And all the commentators on ESPN were talking about the fans. You know, the, the fans were out of control. Something has to be done to control the fans. It's the fans, the fans, the fans. Uh, and then like two nights later, you know, when Stern comes down, it was on a Sunday where Stern announced the penalties. Uh, suddenly all those ESPN commentators were, yeah, this is correct. This is this was terrible. The Pacers, you know, should not have been in the stands and this kind of thing. And and it's like they hold they shifted their entire argument. And this gave me the impression that Stern went to ESPN and said, look, you got to support me on this. Yeah, yeah. you got to you know, you we've got to be together on this. And that's what happened, because a lot of about faces occurred over those two or three days there where they went from putting it on the fans to where they put it on the Pacers. Man, that's always stuck in my mind.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's it's hard to look at this moment. And obviously, you know, I I know a lot more went on off court uh, over the next two years. Um, But I mean, this ultimately just led to the team hitting probably its darkest spot since before Reggie Miller was drafted, you know, um, in the years where where Danny Granger was there, Troy Murphy, (laughs) Mike Dunleavy. Um, You know, in kind of looking at the way that, that, that Ron and, and Jermaine both end up leaving Indiana kind of just, um, well, not kind of, I mean, definitely having left something on the table, you know, it feels like for both guys, and that's not to disperse them as individual players, but I think it's hard to not look at, back at this team and, and be disappointed um, in, in the way that things ended. Um, and I, I'm sure, I, I believe Rick Carlisle said that in an interview before, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I know Ron has, has, has talked out openly about how he's, upset with himself for how things went down. Um, you know, in, in uh, obviously I think you look at the, the way that both those guys left and were traded and and you can't really argue for either of them. Cause again, with Jermaine, the injuries Ron, I think is a little bit murkier, you know, with him, he he played well the next year. He was starting to play well in the first, I think he played 16 games before he gets traded in 0405. I mean, in 0506 uh, for Peja Stojakovic, you know, when that deal happened, what was kind of the general sense of uh, of how that deal went down, and did you think it was mainly? Did you feel like it was mainly because you know just because of the image around Ron and, and the organization kind of trying to shift things back a little bit?
2: Yeah, well, that trade was kind of as is like the brawl itself, I think. In that, it uh, was a confluence of factors. You know, yeah, you're right. Our got off to a good start. He seemed to be you know redeemed. I mean, he was apologetic. He was. You know, trying to behave, he was averaging about twenty points a game. Uh, Pacers got off to a decent start, but he got frustrated. It could almost be pinned to a specific moment. Uh, his trade request that came out of the blue. He was injured. He had had a frustrating home game and a loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at. It. I think it was uh, they lost to Dallas, and uh, at home, he got hurt in that game. He sat out a game. He was frustrated with Rick Carlisle's offense. Now he'll tell you now that he pretty well thrived in that offense, but he was frustrated by Rick Carlisle's offense, which frustrated a lot of players um, at that time is very structured. I called it paint by numbers the way he posted. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of um freedom in it. Yeah. But so Artest is frustrated. He's injured. He's at practice on a Saturday morning. He's not gonna play in the next game, but he's there at practice getting up shots and so forth. And Mike Wells from the star was at that shoot around the morning of a game. And uh, Artest just kind of out of nowhere starts saying, Yeah, I want to be traded. I can see myself playing here. I can see myself playing there. And so Wells talks to him, and Artest puts up a trade request saying, Yeah, I'm a distraction to that. This team is really best, I think, for everybody if I move on, this kind of thing. And you could argue he was correct in saying that. <laughs> yep. But, you know, so this story gets out. I mean, and Actually, what a lot of people don't know is, you know, Mike Wells is doing this story and you know, he contacts Donnie Walsh for comment. So Walsh has wind of it. Walsh talks to Artest and kind of talks him off the ledge, says, Ron, you know, pull this back. You know, this is going to work out. You'll get healthy. You know, let's work on this. So Ron did back off. You know, he was going to rescind the trade request publicly, but Bob Krabbit's the star's columnist at the time you know, ripped into our test in the Sunday morning paper. Uh, he'd been highly critical of Ron throughout, not saying it was never deserved, but that was the approach Bob had taken. Mm-hmm. And he writes another column on a Sunday morning, got to get get him out of here. We're done, you know, this kind of thing. And that kind of fired up our test again. He goes on uh television, local television that Sunday evening, ironically with Chris Denary, the current play-by-play television mm-hmm. voice. At that time, Chris was with was with Channel 59, the Fox affiliate, and you know, publicly puts out his trade request again. And at that point it could not be walked back. So Donnie had to trade him. Uh it was it had gone too far. His teammates were done with Ron. So Donnie, in my opinion, to his credit, didn't panic, didn't give Ron away. He, you know, Kravis is saying trade him for a bag of balls or whatever. You know, Donnie held on. And actually got a good trade, you know, getting Stoyakovich for him. But it took a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in that regard, it kind of worked out, at least for that season. But it was a fluky thing, just like the brawl, It was a fluky thing where if Artest uh, if isn't injured or if Mike Wells doesn't go to shoot around that morning or if, you know, Kravitz's column doesn't fire Artest up again, um, that, that trade request is never made. <laughs> you know, who, something else might have happened later in the year. Who knows? But that was also a fluky moment that had a big impact.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. It's, it's kind of odd to look and think about what that team could have, could have been if, if they continue on the path they're on, you know, and they, they're able to just kind of shed that image. Um, but again, that didn't happen. Um, so I think kind of in closing, you know, obviously it's going to be a long closing thing, but, um, you know, looking at both Jermaine and Ron's legacy in Indiana. Um, and kind of what's behind and and their, their impact on, on, on the organizations on the Pacers um, and their time there, you know, how, 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 how should we look back at them and and see, you know, or or talk about their careers here?
2: Well, that's one of the all time, what could have been stories, you know, so much more could have been accomplished than was. And they've both talked about that. You know, they both could find a lot of things to handle differently, particularly our test, you know, I'm not blaming Jermaine for the brawl or, you know, for the things Artest did to get himself in trouble and the frustrations he caused. But uh, they both, you know, had they been a little older and more mature, could have handled things better. Artest in particular realizes that, you know, it was interesting to me that when the Lakers won that championship with Artest, that he actually he wasn't invited into the postgame press conference. He just went in <laughs> and sat down and He brought up the Pacers. He said, you know, I've lost such an opportunity there. He's mentioning Jeff Foster, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's apologizing basically to the Pacers. I've written articles with Artest when he would come back to the field house when he was a member of the Lakers. And it was the same type of story, you know. And Artest, when he came back, would make a point of going up and seeing Donnie Walsh and Larry Bird after the Lakers would have their game day shoot around. And um, he maintained you know, a good relationship with the organization. And I give Walsh and Bird credit for uh, as much damage as our test calls to the franchise. You know, they did not, they were kind of understanding of his personal issue, you know, and uh, forgiving, I guess you would say of him, I thought that showed something on their part. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it just could have been such a great thing if our test had been more mature or just, You know, Ron had a very difficult upbringing. There's a genetic element there. Uh, He grew up in Queensbridge in a horrible situation where, you know, bullets were flying. Uh, There's a whole lot of things going on that explain why Artest became what he was. But he's obviously grown a lot since then. He played about 16 years in the NBA, which nobody would have predicted. Uh, Hell, the Lakers brought him back at the end of his career to be a mentor
1: to young guys.
2: So. It just was wrong time, wrong place. Two guys who were supremely talented. Pacers had a team that could have won a championship, but things happen. If the brawl doesn't happen, for example, if certain injuries don't happen, who knows what might have happened? It was just bad luck, bad timing. Uh, you know, a couple of guys who could have been a little more mature, that kind of thing. Uh, it's just a what might have been story, and we, we see a lot of those in sports. You know, yeah, uh, those definitely. kind of things happen, and uh, that was the case with the Pacers. It's very unfortunate for the fans that it didn't work out better. Very unfortunate for Reggie Miller not to have another title run. Uh, but that's what happened.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, um, I, I think one of the main reasons I really wanted to do this is because the Pacers were just at such an interesting point now um, in, in where their roster's at. And obviously they have some similar um, off-court things that are, are, are brewing a little bit. Um, and, you know, it's just what what is the team going to do to be a little bit, uh, to, to end up more than just the what might have been? You know, I think that's, that's, that's why I really think about this stuff a lot. You, it, it's fun to look back at history for the things that went well, but I think we learn more by looking at the things that went wrong. Um, you know, I think some of the most informative biographies I've ever read are from people who failed a lot because um, you can learn a lot from people who did things the wrong way, because oftentimes they know more than people who did things the right way in, in, in a lot of ways. You know, I think you, you learn a lot more through failure than you do through um, through winning, at least in my experiences so far. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think also just as a, as a last shout out to everyone about Ron um in growing up in queensbridge i am a huge 90s hip-hop head and if uh if you guys like rap at all um ron actually does the intro for a nas song off of uh queensbridge finest it's a it's an album from a bunch of new york hip-hop artists uh, in the late 90s i think it was 98 or 99 cause it's ron's rookie year he does it. it's like right after coming out of st john's he's on it so go check go check that song out if you want to hear ron when he's like just he sounds like he definitely sounds like he's about 19 years old too. So um, that that's a great throwback. Um
2: Hey, let, let me say this about Ron too, related to that. You know, back in when he was with the Pacers, the early two thousands,
0: the hip thing within the
2: league was to have your own recording studio and try to produce some records. You know, I remember Jermaine O'Neill had a recording studio mm-hmm. somewhere, Jonathan Bender had a recording studio somewhere. Ron was the guy who actually put out product. He yeah. organized, he had a, a girl group, like three women. I forget what they were called at the moment. They actually sang the national anthem at a pastry game one night. Um, And, you know, Ron was the one who had the, who would push things through and make something happen. It wasn't just a dream or whatever. He Ron would make things happen. You know, for better or worse, Ron made things happen. So he had, um he put out product. You know, he put out his own recordings. Uh, I'm sure you could find some on YouTube or whatever. And I'm not enough of a connoisseur of rap to judge them. I mean, obviously he's not 50 cent or one of these guys, but he was doing his thing and he was putting out product and he was completing things. Uh, And Ron also was the guy, you know, I went to his house a couple of times in Indianapolis. He was in the Zionsville suburb Mm -hmm. and he had a kid from uh, Queensbridge living with him who was a guy who was viewed as having potential out there but he was in a dangerous area and he was in danger of getting in trouble ron had him out here taking online classes doing workouts you know actually mentoring a kid trying to keep him out of trouble and, and get him going in life you know ron would do things like that and uh he was always a good hearted guy who wanted to help people uh and You know, he wasn't just all talk. A lot of guys will talk about wanting to do this and that. They might get money to this or that. Ron was doing things, you know, to be helpful. He was going to school groups, kid talking to kids, that kind of thing. Uh, Even after the brawl, he was going to various youth groups and speaking, uh, that type of thing. And he was always giving the right kind of message. So that's why people like Ron. You know, there was always, you know, a positive side to him. And you could kind of understand his behavior at times when you know his background and what he was trying to overcome, you know. And that's why, you know, I think anybody who really knew him, anybody who worked for the Pacer organization, when he was a Pacer will tell you they really liked him. He would do charitable things. Uh, it, it wasn't difficult to get him out into the community, all that kind of thing. So that's the side of Ron Test that people need to keep in mind, you know, along with everything else.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's there's a lot more than just the brawl in terms of him as an on-court player and and, and everything he's done off-court as well. Um, just extremely charismatic. And again, I definitely want to talk to him someday. He's a he's a character. Um,
2: and while we're there, let me add: and Jermaine has been great after his career. He's mm-hmm. you know in Dallas, he's got a lot of different. He's he's got a lot of projects going. You know, he's working with kids. Uh, you know, both of these guys have been great in their post-playing careers and that will have a bigger impact on society than whatever they did as a player. And, you know, whatever the negative impact was of the brawl, you know, what they have done since retiring from playing is going to have a much greater positive impact than whatever the negative impact of that one night was.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And uh, I I think that's a really great place to kind of leave off. And, and uh, this was, this was a really fun podcast. I really enjoyed this one and, and getting to dig into those guys and, talk about their careers. Um, Mark, I'm really excited to record the next one. Uh, we, we have uh, obviously a, a very big one coming up next that, that we can uh, cannot ignore. And I'm sure that people are going to be excited to listen to. Um, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Of course, go go subscribe to everything that Mark does over at markmonteith.com. Um, read our stuff on Indie Cornrows. Of course, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And just have a good rest of your day and go Pacers.